Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Coast The Brief. It's our weekly show about politics. I'm Marcos Molitsis. I'm here with Carrie Elleveld. And today we are going to be talking about the challenges Democrats are facing selling the fact that Joe Biden is, gasp, a good president. (laughs) On results, on the economy, on almost every single measure. And of course, the world's a complicated place, not on everything, everything. But as far as presidents are concerned, he's had a fabulously successful presidency. And yet what we have, what is sort of considered what some people are calling a vibe session. So it's not really about the actual economic indicators or the jobs numbers or people's earning power. It's about this feeling, this malaise for whatever reason. And that is why people are sort of struggling to embrace the the good times. And that has consequences for the 2024 presidential and down ballot elections. And Gary, we have a guest. So to help us talk about this today and maybe make some sense about what is actually going on, our guest today is Simon Rosenberg. He is, I've known Simon forever. He's been on the show multiple times. He's got 30 years of political consulting and media experience. He is now the person behind Hopium Chronicles on Substack. And we've talked about this before, but for those who don't know, Simon was one of the few people like me and like Carrie and I think Joe Trippi that were saying in 2022 that the Democrats were in for a good year, that that all the pessimism about a red wave were overblown. And people would accuse Simon, who was very active on Twitter, of being <laughs> full of hopium, as in he was making stuff up, right? Hopium. Smoking him, smoking hopium. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, Democrats won, and Simon has embraced it. So Simon, welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to see you both, uh, Marcos and Kerry. I'm really great to be back with, with both of you. It, it, tur- it turns out turns out that Simon had the good shit. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I got. I, I think I got it from Joe Biden. <laughs> oh man, it's Joe a part Biden. of uh, the Bidenomics, right? Is the to spread opium all across the country. <laughs> so Simon, that's really what we want to talk about today. Is this notion that, uh, as you've been chronicling, and some people have been mentioning. Things are pretty good right now. And Joe Biden has actually been a good president, yet he doesn't seem to be getting credit for that. And there's a, there's a talk about his low approval ratings and there's sort of this, this vibe session, right? This malaise that has infected people despite things being actually objectively by the data, pretty good. Do you have any sense of what's going on? Yeah, you know, this is, we could, talk about this for days, and I'm not sure that anybody really exactly knows, but let me offer some thoughts. So first of all, in many of the measures in people's lives, when you ask questions about things like, are you happy in your work? Are you happy with your income? Are you happy with your life? Those ratings are actually very high, historically high right now. And so, and we also know on the question of how do you feel about the economy, when you break it out by party, Biden has, you know, with Democrats, he's got very, very high job approval rating, you know, just like he does on foreign policy, too. I mean, he's up in the 70s and 80s on the economy. And as Paul Krugman in The New York Times has been writing about recently, uh, I think very eloquently and powerfully, is that, you know, the people that are down on the economy are MAGA. And that, you know, essentially the way this works 
in any kind of question in national politics now, you know, Joe Biden gets a really good rating from Democrats, medium rating from independents, and then he gets like a zero from mega, right? So it pulls all the numbers down because at least, you know, Democrats would give Trump like a 20, you know, in, in the way the math worked. And so I, I'm not as worried about this because in 2022, we won and had a terrific election despite low Biden approval and high inflation. The economy is substantially better today and will be in this election than it was in 2022. You know, we had another really good election in 2023. We're off to a really good start in 2024. And it's because there's the most powerful thing in our politics today isn't disappointment in Joe Biden or the Democrats. It's fear and opposition to MAGA. That's the thing that's driving. It's been driving our politics since 2018. And if you've been worried about MAGA before, well, wait till you see the MAGA of 2024, because it's a lot more ugly and awful and terrible and dangerous and scary than it was before. And so if, you know, you yeah, they're spoken the bad shit. Yeah, they're spoken the bad. yeah, no, I mean, they look, they're presenting what we're looking at is the ugliest political party in American history since the Democratic Party, of the 1850s. Right. I mean, this is the ugliest bunch of stuff that we've all ever seen. And so I, I'm, I have this quiet confidence that once voters really understand that it's Trump and it's Biden, you know, the Biden will pick up a few points. Everyone will get a little bit more calm, you know, and then we just got to put our head down and do the work and go win the election. Carrie, I know you got you got a leaf blower going on in the I, background, but I know you're dying to get a I'm glad it's not me. I was just worried that was me somehow. Usually no. it's my dog barking. I, you know, I was waiting. So we Carrie, do. Carrie, thank you. Carrie, Sorry thank you. about that. Yeah, no, I, 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 we, I have a dog too, so you might hear her because she's barking at the leaf blower outside. Anyway, so right, it's really good over here. But um, I didn't hear anything that you said, Simon. No, I'm just kidding. I'm totally yeah. joking. Yeah. I heard it all. It was all good. Yeah. I just wanted to note also. So that that, you know, it's not only do like you talked about Paul Krugman writing about the economy and how, you know, when you look at the the questions about how do you feel about the economy, it's clear that like, you know, Republicans are down here at zero and they're pulling everything down and they're non-responsive to any of the changes in the actual you know, economy. That's the same. Same thing is true for age. Right. I mean, it's a partisan bias. So what you'll notice is if you go into the cross tabs of are you worried about Joe Biden's age? It's true that people are worried about Joe Biden's age. It's also true that Democrats are willing to say I'm concerned about that. Guess who isn't willing to say that about Trump? Republicans. Right. Right. So as so much of this is a partisan bias. And and I just want to just quickly before Paul Krugman is using civics data, which is our data. Yes, by the way, he's a huge promoter of civics. So I just want to take a little moment to brag, pat ourselves on the back. All right, Gary, go back. Yeah, no, no, it's so true. And this is one of the reasons that I love civics. And I write about civics all the time and I use their graphs and charts, but I'm not Paul Krugman. (laughs) So there you go. But anyway, um, I wanted to bring something else up, too, is that, you know, to your point that people are feeling pretty good, you know, like Axios has this things called the, the vibes survey. And yep. they, and when they ask people about their how they feel about their personal finances and yep. not the economy, they actually feel really good about their personal finances. And I'm going to yeah. I'm going to cue out now since uh, it sounds like. Yeah, the, and Carrie, uh, let me just let me just build on what you were saying is that we, we also know that consumer sentiment is rising very dramatically. And I caught the very end of what Marcos 
was saying, and I think what he was saying is correct, is listen, we just went through a national trauma as a country, right? I mean, a really profound trauma, and particularly a profound trauma if you were an older person or a parent with kids at home. And I think it's going to take a while for people to feel like we're on firm ground again. I mean, I, and, I, and I think that's okay. You know, I, I think it's part of what's happening. And what, despite all of the, the questions about Biden's age and the disappointment, you know, the worries about the economy, this basic fundamental reality is that since Dobbs, Democrats keep overperforming in elections, Republicans keep struggling. And we saw that throughout 2022. We had like a blue wave year in 2023. We won everywhere and took all sorts of stuff away from them, including the six-week abortion ban. And we killed the idea of the 15-week abortion ban in Virginia. And we flipped a bunch of places all over the country. The Wisconsin Supreme Court seat, which you know has ended up getting rid of the terrible gerrymander in Wisconsin. We had a really good year in 2023. And then the question is, would it show up in 2024, now that it started to become the presidential? And we've started to see it show up in the presidential, right? You know, Trump has underperformed public polling now by a substantial margin in the first three early states. They had an anemic turnout in Iowa. I tell the story that in Iowa, he got 56,000 votes out of 750,000 registered Republicans, 93% of registered Republicans in Iowa after $100 million and tons of candidate time and debates. You know, 93% of Republicans in Iowa didn't vote for Trump, right? And he's supposed to be this very powerful figure. The RNC is broke. Uh, Trump is raising, is spending more money than he's taking in, which has never happened before at a serious presidential campaign. Lawyers are expensive, Simon. Yeah, I know. And, you know, we've seen dozens of leading Republican Party officials across the country indicted. We've seen two just removed under, in his, you know, wild scandals that just happened. House Republicans are leaving the House in droves. They're abandoning ship. They see the dumpster fire and they're running in the other direction. And, um, and Trump is losing in court all over the place. I mean, he's getting routed in court. And so when you look at their thing, right, their thing is broken and, you know, broken, broken, as I like to say. Trump is dramatically underperforming. And then look at us, right? Biden's raising tons of money. He doesn't have a serious challenge. The party's actually relatively unified. We've all been through times when it wasn't, right? It's relatively unified right now. You know, he's done very well in the early primaries where there's there's actually been contested voting, but also he's been, you know, what's important uh, for us is that we won this House special election in Orlando, Florida, where we were dramatically outspent in a very competitive race. We just blew it out in New York three. Uh, you know, I'm very close to Tom Suozzi. He just called me a few minutes ago. You know, no one thought we were going to win that race by more than one or two points. And we won by eight points. And so this basic dynamic is that I think it, that we've seen Democratic overperformance, Republican struggle is because I think at the core, something broke inside the Republican Party with Dobbs, that it just, the party became too ugly, too awful, too extreme, too dangerous for a lot of Republicans. And they're just not playing ball with the MAGA-led party anymore. And they're gonna have a very hard time, in my view, in the general election. That's why I'm, it's a fundamental reason I'm so optimistic about our opportunities in 2024. I, I just want to piggyback real quick and say about abortion and Dobbs, right? This new wrinkle, um, which is horrifying about, you know, IVF and the IVF ruling in in vitro fertilization ruling in Alabama from the Supreme Court that ruled that at frozen embryos are people, right, is a disaster. And it, it is, you know, people think of abortion as the thing that you happen, you use when you don't want 
something, when something goes wrong or when you know, there was an accident or whatever, right? A mishap. But people using IVF want babies. They want them. They want that option. They are incredibly invested, particularly the women in Alabama who have frozen embryos right now, who have gone through a bunch of treatments in order to get those, the frozen embryos, in order to get the embryo to take all that stuff, right? So the idea that, and and I looked at the demographics of who this affects, and it is, yeah. it is very white. It is very upper income. And it, there are some other things too, but like- it's suburban? Also, a totally suburban. And, yeah. and not only that, it's not yeah. just women. I've got news for all the Republicans out there saying, oh, this is a terrible situation for women. Men want those babies too, you yeah. idiots, right? Yeah. So this isn't just a woman issue anymore, right? This is a direct correlation of what happened in Dobbs and how it is now turning into a nightmare, not just for American women, but for the American people. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I, can I just say quickly is that I think one of the things that happened with the IBF stuff is that it's now a confirmation that Dobbs was just the beginning. And if you wondered really what was going to happen and what their intent was, you know, the Supreme Court saying we should just leave it to the states. Right. I mean, it's an absurdity. I mean, this is an unprecedented war on women, on reproductive freedom, reproductive health in America. You know, Germany just issued a travel advisory to the United States telling pregnant German women should be careful about coming to the United States because they're not guaranteed to get the care they need if they're here, right? I mean, we're entering, we're moving backwards into the you know medieval times here in the United States. And I think this is, I think the IVF stuff is devastating for the Republicans because it made their fantasy that somehow they were gonna escape the downward pressure on their brand post Dobbs it's now inevitable that this is going to be pulling them down. Like a, the anchor around their ankle just got twice as big as it was before. And it was bad to begin with, right? I mean, they, again, this has been central to the reason they keep struggling. And I think one of the things we should talk about and we should do research on is that, and I think this is where Nate Cohn and some of the folks look talking about elections are not getting this right. This shift of higher income, higher educated people into the Democratic Party that's happened, and particularly post-Dobbs, is not just a voting issue. It's a money issue. It creates, it's money that is now not going to Republicans. Trump is struggling to raise hard dollars. Nikki Haley raised more money than he did last month, right? And it's money that's coming to us. And that extra money is building the largest campaigns that we've ever had, which is central to the reason why we're winning these elections. And, and so I think the consequences of what's happening here is is dire for the Republican Party, not just electorally, but organizationally. The Republican Party's hard dollar part of the Republican Party is atrophying, and ours is becoming stronger and bigger than it's ever been in modern history. And I and it's another reason why you know we sh there is we should have a quiet confidence about what's going to happen in 2024. We have an incredible amount of work to do. And but my God, I mean, you can't put lipstick on this Trump and MAGA pig and, and dress. The, you know, my line on this, if I could do this, is that, you know, you can dye his hair, paint his face, strap a girdle on him and a diaper, too. You can pump him full of speed. And this guy's still never going to look like a presidential candidate ever again. And, and I think we have to just, you know, the emperor has no clothes. We're going to pull the wizard, you know, the curtain back from the wizard. This guy is the most awful, horrible thing we've all ever seen. And we're all pretending in this ridiculous kind of Foxlandia, Foxlandish way that he's a serious candidate for president of the United States. 
And we just got to stop going there collectively and, and really claiming that, you know, showing that the emperor has no clothes, that he's, you know, he wears more friggin' makeup than drag queens do. And we got to just mock this guy because he's a joke. He's an embarrassment. He's an insult to all of us who care about our families and our kids and our country. And it's why we're all here and why we're fighting so hard in this election. All right. So um, Sorry, as, no, you, as you alluded, Donald Trump <laughs> has really been underperforming the polls and it's it's yeah. significant it's six to eight points six to ten points i think some of the states have been ten points yeah. so yeah. he polls worse in south carolina which is one of the most mega states possible he only got 60 percent most of the states he's barely struggling to get half of the republican turnout yeah. and those turnouts yeah. aren't particularly great it's not like you're getting record turnout yeah. so like you, you're right most republicans are not turning out for for donald trump and if you look at the, the fundraising numbers, the fact that he has installed his daughter-in-law to run the RNC with zero experience running say, anything. I would say asterisk, he wants to. I think that, I think Haley Barber, I think someone actually well, filed- a, Haley Barber's son or daughter. Haley Barber's yes. son, I, yes. that's 100%. what I was wondering. It, it's, it's a, yeah, but it's, there's no vote yet and we'll see what that looks like, who the RNC members are. They're gonna try to prevent him from using RNC right. funds to pay his legal bills. RNC is broke regardless. So it's not like yeah. the previous. Yeah. Can we just say, though, that there's been a petition filed that Trump, until he wins the nomination, would not be able to take over the RNC. I mean, he doesn't he actually hasn't. I think it's been announced that he's going to install Lara, but she hasn't been actually installed yet. Is that true, Simon? I think. That's well, so, true. yes. And so yeah. the, the critical thing here, let's just recognize there are two different things going on here. Right. One is that he wants to do it for the money. The second thing he wants to do is for the court cases. He wants to argue that he's the nominee in the court cases, and that is past the point where any of these cases can move against him because he's already the nominee of the party. And that's the other reason he's freaking out so bad about Haley staying in, is that it weakens his position on all these claims of immunity and everything else that he's been trying to do to delay because he actually isn't the nominee of the Republican Party. We're not actually in the general election yet. And so, yeah, there. I mean, he is spinning his wheels because he's getting his ass kicked in court case after court case. And if this continues, look, he has his first criminal trial and starting on March 24th in New York over the Stormy Daniels case. And so the fact that he paid a porn star to have sex while his wife was home with their young it's child. Family you values. Know, yeah, right. Is going to be back in the news. And, and that, you know, people have already gone to jail over this case. Right. So, I mean, he's got enormous legal exposure. This wasn't one of the high profile cases. This is you know, a lower profile case, but the stuff is coming and he just keeps losing because he's guilty, right? He's actually done all these things. And so, yeah, he's got a lot of exposure. And so I, I do think that they are, I think that if you really take a step back and look what's happening is their thing is in serious trouble that he's a much weaker candidate than he was in 2020. The part, you know, remember for the, your, your viewers and listeners, 80% of the money in the staff in a general election go through the state parties and the national party. They don't go through the Trump campaign. So the, the, the parties are this huge funnel and vehicle through which the actual operations all happen. If that's all atrophied and burned to the ground and has crazy people running it, right, it has enormous consequence for how they're going to conduct the campaign itself. Um, and, and that's why the, the sort of the breaking apart of the RNC right now and the breaking apart of the party infrastructure is so consequential for Trump. Yeah, in key we, battleground yeah. states like Michigan and Arizona as well. 
No, it's crashing. Yeah. I mean, they, they had yeah. they put crazy MAGA people in charge, and the parties are atrophying. People aren't giving them money. They don't have any staff. And you know, there is a limit, you know, to how fast you can grow something, right? There's an organic kind of limit, and you know, they can't like beam in there in July and August when there's nothing there and produce a big national campaign that quickly. And so they've got enormous operational and financial problems that I think are still not adequately understood in the national discourse. As somebody who's been through presidential campaigns and been doing this a long time, their thing is, you know, they got big problems so, right now, you know? That, so I, I think, you know, we, we, you know, we've talked about how Trump is underperforming polls and, yep. and the organizational problems and <laughs> the shit show that is the Trump campaign, the Republican party. Yet the national polls still show pretty much a 50-50 yeah. race. Yeah. What's that about? Well, I think, so I think a few things. One is that I think that our side has no reason to be engaged. We haven't really had a competitive primary. And I worry, I, I will say, I worry about what happens to incumbents in our current system, where so much of the way that we interact with information now is like social media, you know, it's about contact, right? And it's about what's it called, attention economy that we all live in. And it's sort of what I think happened in 2016 with Hillary. I mean, I think her not having a, a real primary, I think, you know, hurt her in, in terms of how much she was on television, how much people were seeing her, how big the organization got. You know, Obama in 2008, we had our best national result as a party in 2008 that we've had since 1964 in what was arguably the most competitive primary right in 2008 because we had because democrats were engaged they had candidates they were giving money they were paying attention and they were in the game right really early and then obama came out of the shoot and brought that whole thing you know forward and and you know trump in 2020 didn't have a primary and he got beat and so i think that the lack of engagement um of our side in the campaign frankly the biden campaign starting a little bit late in my view, you know, is the, the only thing that worries me, and I'm not a worrier at my site, we talk about how we do more and worry less. I'm not into worrying. I think we worry too much as Democrats. The one thing if I could change right now, so I wish the campaign had started a little earlier. We can make up that ground, right? It's gonna, they're gonna have to work really hard. And the good news is that many grassroots volunteers haven't been sitting it out. They've been doing work and winning all these elections all across the country, as we just saw in the, saw in the Swazi race. In the Swazi race, by the way, we made 2 million phone calls in a, I mean, 2 million, right? Which is like the kind of number you would make in Michigan in the general election. We made 2 million phone calls in five weeks in a House special election. I mean, to show how intense our, and powerful our grassroots is right now. I think- And, I think and to be clear, that's volunteers. Yeah. It's not paid it's staff. all volunteers, there's no paid. There's no paid. <laughs> yeah. we, the, the estimate is that the typical Democratic household got five postcards written to them in the Swazi district. They knocked on- So they're like, God damn it, okay. We're gonna yeah, vote. no, no. But, it, but it's, the, the point is, is that, look, we're building the most powerful democratic machine that we've ever had. The hundreds of thousands, millions of proud patriots who love their country are going to work in election after election. And they're gonna to go to work in the general election too. It's one of the reasons we keep performing at the upper end of what's possible is because of all the people listening and watching today uh, you know, who've just put their head down and they write their postcards and do their calls and do their texting and canvas when they can and be information warriors for our democracy. All of this is adding up to creating the most powerful political machine we've ever had while their machine is in, is atrophying and dying and collapsing in front of our eyes.
Right, right. Hey, you know, I think we would be doing our listeners a disservice if we didn't at least mention what happened in South Carolina. Um, and I, I, I'm particularly interested in this personally because, so first of all, you know, uh, Nikki Haley got 43% in New Hampshire. Now, New Hampshire was sort of custom built for her, a bunch of super engaged in voters, libertarian streak, highly educated um, group of people in New Hampshire, right? And so when she got 43% there, I was like, this is great. This gives us some hope. But I never expected her to come close to getting it again. And when she did that, I lived in South Carolina for seven years of my early adult life. I lived in Charleston and I lived in Greenville. So in the low country and the upstate. And I was shocked. And I am talking shocked when I found out that she got 40% in South Carolina. So there is, she is uncovering not just a weakness, but a wide berth of voters that the Biden campaign can go after. So yeah, just go ahead. Yeah, no, this is super important. We didn't cover this earlier is that we've now seen the, the polling and the results in these three early states matter more than the national polling, because these are voters who've seen ads, seen candidates. They've had to go through the process of, you know, figuring out, what they want, you know, if you're living in another state, it's still kind of a luxury, right? You haven't had to go through all of that to get to the place of decision-making. So these are highly informed voters and they're also people who voted, right? Not non-voters, right? So these are highly engaged people. And what we're learning from the, so one is what we're learning is that Trump keeps underperforming public polls and is struggling to get the vote that he wants. The second thing though, is that we've seen now in all three states in the exit and entrance polls, a substantial number of Haley voters who've said they will vote for Biden in the general election. Not that they won't vote for Trump. There's a difference, right, between not voting for Trump and voting for Biden. In one South Carolina exit poll that Fox News was talking about the other night, 59% of Haley voters said they were open to voting for Biden. We haven't seen poll numbers like that in a, in a presidential election since the Reagan election in 1984. I mean, we haven't seen that potential for crossover that could happen. In, in Iowa, the number she, you know, the NBC News, the first indication we had of this is the Sunday before the Iowa caucuses, NBC News released a poll that showed that Haley at 20% and 43% of her voters said that they were they would vote for Biden in the general. Only 23% said they'd vote for Trump. Now, we know that a bunch of those people will end up voting for Trump, but if let's just talk about what the 43 of the 20% means. That's 5% of the overall vote in the general election. Five percentage points, right? One out of 20 voters are Republicans who voted for Haley who said they're going to vote for Biden in the general election. And that's a 10-point swing. Yeah, no, that's that is a that is catastrophic. If that even if we get halfway there, right, that's two to three points on top of what we already had. And remember, Trump lost the last election, everybody, right? So he has to gain, he has to grow, and you know, he's bleeding Republicans. I mean, this is part of what happened to all the Trumpy candidates in the battleground states in 2022 is that they all failed to bring their coalition together, they bled Republicans into the Democratic camp. I mean, when Whitmer announced in 2022 in Michigan, she had 150 prominent Republicans. On, the governor, know, at, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, with the, her. You know, I mean, we haven't seen things like that in, in 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, there hasn't been this kind of open crossover. And the thing that's important for you know everyone to realize is that some of that happened in 2020. Some of it happened. It happened, it was, I think, arguably bigger in 2022. If it happens now even bigger in 2024, you're now going to have Republicans who voted Democratic in three consecutive elections. 
those are called Democrats. They're not called <laughs> Republicans anymore, right? And so there is sort of the the reverse of the Reagan Democrat thing here potentially happening. Uh, the the where a right? Chunk who, of the, who yeah, I mean, Republican the chunk of Republicans. 30 years. Right. And so we're seeing, you know, that I think that the Republican Party has splintered. I think Dobbs increased the splinter, right, that had already begun. The, the, the attack on the Capitol, the growing extremism and danger of the Republican Party, the, the sort of inescapable awfulness of Trump, and, and that all of this is creating, to your point, Carrie, a huge opening for the Biden campaign to go take away stuff from Republicans that was never available to us before. And it's why I, you know, I wrote a memo a year ago, which we've talked about on this together called Get I, was, to I wanted to bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, a, which was a, a year ago, I made this argument that their increased extremism and everything else was creating opportunity for to grow our coalition and take stuff away from them. And look what we did in 2023 I, since I wrote I, that memo. I don't, I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you're, you're, you're going back too quickly. I just want to okay. really stress that. Yeah. So the foundationally, right now we're a 51-49, 52-48 nation, slight yeah. Democrat, which means that in a bad year, Republicans win. Yeah. We have to get everybody out and we have the lowest performing voting groups of all of them. So it's it's a struggle every election. Simon's been arguing, all we got to do is like, get three to four points and we can get three to four points. He's looked at young voters, at Latina voters, at single women. He's looked at various groups and the, the numbers are there. And now we have Haley voters. If we can just go from 51 or 52% of the electorate to 55, that is a 55, 45 nation. That's a 10 point spread. That gives us some breathing room in case you have a bad turnout election. Also yep. means we're gonna win a lot more house and Senate races down the ballot and, and governor races, et cetera. So that's an incredibly important, I think, shockingly revolutionary idea. Let's let's expand. <laughs> well, let's, <laughs> I mean, look, this is this answers all of our questions. What about third party? If we win by 10 points, it doesn't matter, right? What about all the shenanigans Republicans might pull at the election? If we win by 10 points, it doesn't matter, right? I mean, the, the, the way we have to think about this, and Marcos, we, you know, we discussed this, I think, in one of our previous shows, is that from 19, so just a couple quick stats, right? So Republicans won five out of six presidential elections from 68 to 88, some of them by enormous margins. And the only election we won in that period was Jimmy Carter's election, which he got to 50.1% after Watergate, right? I mean, pretty incredible. I mean, pretty show the sign of how weak we were as a national party. And then Clinton won in 92. And since 92, we've won more votes in seven out of eight elections. It's the best popular vote run of a political party in American history. But there's two different periods in there. 92 to 2004, we averaged 47% of the vote in those four elections. And then when I got to know you, Marcos, in those years originally, right, you know, because of millennials and Hispanics and the work that I did back then about showing that there was a new coalition coming. Obama leaned into that coalition. He got all the way up to 53%, the best showing we'd had since 1964, the second best showing we had since FDR's presidency, by the way. It's that significant, that victory. And in the four elections since 2004, we've averaged 51, they've averaged 46. So we've got a five point delta right over the Republicans. So we went from 47 to 51 by identifying a new coalition and building a politics towards it. And what I'm arguing is we need to do the same thing now with it. We have another opportunity to expand our coalition to go from 51 to 55 by identifying and targeting these groups and, and, and recognizing that Republicans are, because of their extremism and everything else, have made stuff available to us that would not be available to us before, right? It's not just 
our strength and our vision. It's their weakness. We have this opportunity to take stuff away from them. And in 2023, you know, I wrote this memo in March a year ago, and then we took away Wisconsin Supreme Court seat. We took away Colorado Springs and Jacksonville, Florida, two of the largest Republican health cities in the country. We took away the six week abortion ban. We took away in Ohio, we took away the Virginia House and sort of dashed their hopes of the 15 week abortion ban and Glenn Youngkin coming in on a white night and saving the Republican party. We then gained seats in New Jersey. Andy Bashir grew his margin in Kentucky. We won city municipal races and, and city council races and school board races all across the country. We then won in Orlando. We just won in New York three. Every one of these things is stuff we're taking away from them. We're expanding, we're growing, they're getting weaker and, and shrinking, right? I think that is the likely scenario about what happens this fall. It's not a guarantee. I'm not predicting. No, we got to work. I mean, yeah, yeah we got to do the work because two million phone calls were made in in the it's, New York special, right? It's incredible. So I mean, that took a one to two point race, right? It took a one to two point race and made it an eight point race. And I, my favorite part of that day, can I just tell everybody the story? Is that the campaign emailed me Swazi at six thirty, and said, you know, we have leftover GOTV targets because the early the election day vote was a little low because of the snow. They had bad weather that day. They said, will you email your community and ask them to make calls? Because they had still had two and a half hours, right? The vote, you know, the election, the polls were open to nine o'clock. So I emailed and 300 people clicked through and started making calls on a Tuesday night, right? Yeah. But then I got a, a message from someone in my community and said, Simon, thanks so much. I want you to know I'm sitting in Los Angeles in a backyard. There's 12 other people here with me. We've been making phone calls into New York three all day. And we're not going to stop until the polls close. And, you know, I mean, I just we have to recognize that we didn't have the technology to do that kind of stuff mm -hmm. eight years ago, six years ago. And what's happening now is that, you know, in California, you could always export your money to other states. Now you can export your labor. And, you know, and it's making an enormous difference. We are building this the largest and most powerful Democratic machine we've ever had. And it's because of all of you. I don't. I don't want to rain on your parade, Simon. But go, but, but go ahead, Carrie. <laughs> but I don't want to rain on it. But yeah. but you you do know, of course, that 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 the Republicans were hiring snowplows going to get out. <laughs> well, you had, you may have had an army of callers, Simon, yeah. but the Republicans had at least three or four snowplows that were trying to clear the streets so that their voters could only get out. in their <laughs> neighborhoods. By the way, that I mean, if you want to know like everything about our two parties, right? Like they hire snowplows just to dig out their neighborhoods, not to help the whole place, right? To help everybody. Because, you know, we're the party of everyday people. They're the party of oligarchs, right? And it manifests in every possible way, including hiring private snowplows. By I the mean, way, when in a major storm, which meant that those snowplows were not taking care of people in other places, right? I mean, it's just who cares like, about them? Right? I know. Just, that, story, know, that story was uh, unbelievable. But our and, people had voted early because they're not, a, we don't have Donald Trump saying that early voting is evil and then putting all the eggs on that election day basket, which I like it when it comes back and bites them. Okay, so let me let me ask yeah. you. So, Carrie, question. we have we have oh. time for one more question. So you get the you get. Sorry, the... I've been babbling a little bit. Oh here, guys. boy, yeah. really? Just one more? Okay, all right. Let me do something that I think um, will end us on a positive note. I just want to play. We queued up a spot of Gavin Newsom, who I'm sure you saw on Meet the Press, make a very good case for reelecting Biden when Kristen uh, Welker, the Meet the Press uh, host now, said. 
Do you think it's irresponsible for Democrats to put Biden at the top of the ticket, given the concerns about his age? So let's play that. And then I'd love to hear you react to it because I thought it was so good. Yep. Do you think it's responsible for Democrats to put him at the top of the ticket, given those concerns? Responsible. I revere his record. I, I mean, this, what he's done in three years has been a masterclass, close to 15 million jobs. That's eight times more than the last three Republican presidents combined. The economy is booming. Inflation is cooling. It's 0.6 percent more than it was in the summer of 2020 at just 3.1 percent. Wait a second. We have American manufacturing coming back home all because of Biden's wisdom, because of his temperance, his yeah. capacity to lead in a bipartisan manner, which is an underrepresented point. And so I have great confidence moving forward. So the answer is absolutely all in in terms of the next four years. <laughs> I love Gavin. Um, Marcos knows that Gavin and I are old buddies and, you know, he's an avid Hopium Chronicles reader. And <laughs> and I, I think that this gets back to the Emperor Has No Clothes, the Wizard of Oz, the red, the red wave that never came, the right wing noise machine, that just so much of our daily discourse is just bullshit that it's just stunning. I mean, things are, you know, the base on this basic measure are, are things better than when Biden came to office? Think about where things were in January, 2021. We were, the vaccines had not come. Hundreds of thousands of people had died unnecessarily because of Trump's mismanagement of, of, of COVID. We were in deep recession. The world economy was teetering. Washington, D.C., where I live, was, you know, the capital was under military occupation because it had uh, just been attacked. There had not been a peaceful transfer of power. The normal transition from one government to another didn't actually happen, right? The White House, the Biden people were coming in like literally cold with no transfer of power. And where we are today, right? I mean, today we're on the other side of COVID, which was the main promise that Joe Biden made to us. Our recovery here is stronger than any other advanced economy in the world. Inflation is lower here than any other advanced economy in the world. The stock market is breaking records. We have the lowest uninsured rate in American history. We have more new businesses being started every month than any time in, ever in American history by, by all various measures, right? Incredible sign of the health and vitality of the American economy. Real wages are increasing at a level that hasn't been seen in generations right now in this current period. Inflation's come way down. Rents are coming down, right? Interest rates are coming down. I mean, everything, we are in, a, we are in one of the strongest economies in the history of the United States right now. And so, you know, if Joe Biden came to us in 2020 and said, hey, we got real problems, I'm gonna get us to the other side of these problems. He's met his fundamental promise to all of us. And that's why in the next few months, I assume, right, with the State of the Union coming next week, we're gonna to start to hear him laying out his second term agenda. And as I wrote in a piece in the New Republic a few weeks ago, my hope is that he says, look, you asked me to solve one, you know, to get us to the other side of one really existential challenge last time. We got two more we got to take on together, which is countering climate change and making sure democracy prevails here and everywhere else around the world. I think it's going to be very possible for Joe Biden to really challenge us as a country to rise up and meet these enormous historic challenges, as we already are, right? But we have a lot of work to do. These are the challenges, preserving democracy, countering climate change is really gonna be the work of millennials and Gen Z, right? This is gonna be the work in front of them. 
those of us who are older, we had other things we had to do when it when we had our 25 year arc, right, of what our politics was going to look like in our lifetime. And so the battles that are in front of us are among the most consequential battles the country have ever faced. And I think we're up for it. I think our party's up for it. I think the country's up for it. I'm very optimistic about what we're going to be able to do together once we shake all the noise and the worry and the fear and the uncertainty and the doubt and just remind ourselves that Joe Biden's been a good president, the country's better off, the Democratic Party is strong and winning elections all across the country, and they got Trump, this guy who wears more makeup than a drag queen and who we're going to kick his ass in this election. We've been kicking their ass all over the country. We're going to do it again. And so I feel good. Look, we got a lot of work to do, but I would so much rather be us than them in every imaginable way. Kerry, he's as good a surrogate for Biden as uh, Gavin Newsom is. I just want to take a moment. The New York Times, just just South Carolina, they called Biden's 96% victory a, a worrying sign about the intensity for his candidacy. But Donald Trump's 60% was a whopping, crushing... Blowout. Historic blowout. This is why, you know, sites like Daily Coast and Simon's yeah. work at Hopium Chronicles is really important. We're, we're, we're not, you know, despite the, the joke name Hopium Chronicles, Simon is very data driven, very reality based, just like Daily Coast. And it is a, a clear eyed view. It's partisan, yes, but it's clear eyed about the challenges and the opportunities that we face. And that's why Simon's work is so critically important. And that's why I'm so, always so happy to have him on the show. I'm so glad. It, that Hopium Chronicles is doing so well on Substack. Please, if you haven't already, check it out. Simon, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thank you both. And uh, good luck with the leaf blower, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Good luck with the snow plows. <laughs> <laughs> Carrie, thank you so much for being my lovely co-host as always. Thanks to Walter for producing and everybody who helps behind the scenes, Paul and Perry. Thank you, the reader, viewer, listener, activist for doing the work that you're doing to save our democracy from this very existential MAGA threat. As you heard from Simon, we're in good shape, but we are in good shape because of people like you. And that's why we're going to win in November. And so glad to have you guys along for the ride. Thank you so very much. Love you all from the bottom of my heart. Talk to you guys next week.